From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 211 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host, Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not too bad. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. I am sure you have been busy working on what is going to be a record-breaking video called It's Raining Iguanas from Out of the Sky. Iguanas, no need to ask why. Just cover your head and close your eyes. It's raining iguanas. <laughs> uh, Michael. That was big news out here. The commitment that you just put forth is unmatched by anything that we've ever had anywhere else on uh, any of the shows. Uh, yeah, I I was not fortunate enough to actually see any raining iguanas down on us. Uh, I saw some posts from people in South Florida who experienced it, but... Yeah, we've uh, we've been on the colder side of things in Florida for sure. Yeah, I I saw people who are very who are trying to warm up the iguanas. They're putting little blankets, like pil- yeah, blankets around them and little pillows under their heads. I thought that's very kind. It, it, it's very nice for them. I'm not sure if they deserve it, but you know what? They're getting it anyways. <laughs> well, speaking of iguanas. <laughs> Uh, because there are iguanas in in the in what we're going to be talking about today, and that is where I'm, I attended a couple of virtual panels uh, that were put on for members of the uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and the first one is going to be on the making of Encanto, and then the second one was on the making of the television series Zorro, and of course in the locales of both of these films. Are, take place in there are iguanas so um, so let's start out first with the the making of Encanto panel and this was hosted um, by Tracy Timmer of the Walt Disney Family Museum and the panelists were the two directors Jared Bush and Byron Howard and then one of the producers Yvette Marino and the they started out by showing the 60th um well, well, first of all, they started by saying this is the 60th um, animated Walt Disney film. And then they showed the sizzle reel of the title cards of all the animated films. like, And they showed this same sizzle reel at Destination D23. I have no mm-hmm. doubt we'll see it at the D23 Expo. and Maybe. And every Maybe. other Disney event that there's going to be. I mean, after this one, they're moving past 60, though. So... They want to look forward to the future, so maybe we'll see a new version of it. But at the same time, too, they took the effort to make the sizzle reel. So you're you're probably right. We're going to see it for a long time <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. So so they 
talked about how this was the culmination of years of work of hundreds of people. And um, Byron said that he spent five years uh, and eight internal screenings, and there were a thousand scripts for this. And Jared and Brian, uh, as you probably know, he they first teamed up on Zootopia. And they said um, both are lifelong musicians. They both play um, tr- they're both they both play the trombone, and they mm. wanted to take a fresh approach to musicals. So they teamed up with Lin Manuel Miranda, and Jared, of course, had worked with him on Moana, and they talked about what was the most important um, and and sort of commonality that people have and. They agreed it was family. So then the central question became for the film, uh, how well do we know our families and how well do our families know us? So they said four years ago, Jared was having dinner with his sister and he said how great it was that their parents told them to follow their dreams. And she said, I wasn't raised that way. (laughs) <laughs> and he realized that she was older and so and she was the guinea pig sort of for how he was raised so even though they were raised in the same household they had very different experiences no. and it yeah so it was all about perspective and how they were raised differently under the same roof I I think one of the things right away that you mentioned that I find fascinating that I I kind of heard a little bit about on a different podcast not not ours obviously but uh it was pointing out talking about Frozen and pointing out like how far Disney has come over the years that you know a lot of these new movies like Frozen and Encanto have gone through hundreds of thousands of script and story changes, whereas like old school Disney, you know, it started out very basic. Like I believe Snow White started off as like just a series of notes and eventually mm-hmm. flourished to what it became through, you know, obviously writing more and and through storyboarding. And that's how the story came together versus some of the movies that are made now that are like we need to have this script perfect to a T before we can start on it. And uh, it's so fascinating to hear how much work went into Encanto, how many, how many changes were made right at the start. Uh, Again, what, what you said, a a thousand is Mm -hmm. I believe the exact number you gave. So that's, that's That's what he said. Yeah. Wow. Isn't it crazy? And Snow White started out with Walt calling everybody in and he acted out the whole film. I mean, what a change in the company. Granted, one that would not be possible today uh, to to just act out movies based on one person. Uh, but it's maybe maybe they're doing too much now. I think you could at least argue that. Not that maybe they're overthinking it a little bit. Yeah, they may be. Maybe. Uh, you know, an argument probably could be made for it for maybe some of the, I don't know, some of the storylines or lack of storylines or yeah, things like that. Uh, not that we're going to do that here. That's yeah. uh, that's not our place. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, now they they chose um, Columbia as the setting, um, the the home of the. They said the magical um, realism. 
And they went there with Lin-Manuel Miranda and his dad. And again, they showed the same film that we saw at Destination D23 of them exploring Columbia. And we talked about that film when we, when we talked about Destination D23. And Columbia is the crossroads of Latin America. And it's a mix of African and Latin culture. So they said the trip changed their lives and that it was a continual, continual, continual journey, um, over their last five years. So they said they visited the secret forest and that's an area of natural magic, um, tied to emotion called magical realism. And that's called Encanto. I still don't quite have my head wrapped around what is natural magic. Tied to emotion and magical realism. Well, as someone who is as pessimistic as I am, I don't think we'll find <laughs> it via me either. But I- I'm open to all sorts of magic. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I see. I see how there's magic and beauty. You know the you know and the beauty of nature and sort of the ma- you know the magic and majesty of it all. Like like you know. Yeah. Caterpillar turning into a butterfly, for example. Oh, Michael, I feel like you've been sitting on that all day. <laughs> um, but, but otherwise, so anyway, so they, so when they, um, inf- so when they infused magical realism with family and where the family lived in Encanto, they said the story came together. So they realized that the family's house could have powers, just like the ocean in Moana. Could, uh, could be a character, but the house could also have an attitude. And they said each room is unique and it reflects the personality of each family member. And the house reflects the family. So if the fa- family is playful, so is the house. And if the house, if the family is stressed, then the house cracks. And so when you, so I think when we think back to the different scenes, like Maribel with Antonio and the, how the house is reacting with them in their conversation, you can see that. And, and, and so it, it's interesting to go back and see the different character interactions and then how the house reacted. Yeah. I, I, I see it to an extent for it. I don't know if they sold it too much. I mean, I do think that the house directly uh, correlates with Mirabelle's feelings uh, more vividly than a lot of the other characters, but I, I do see it to an extent, but I, I guess a little bit was lost on me, but I, I do see it. It's, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I do think it's there. So, um, and then that they talked about the Colombian cultural trust and um, Juan Redden and um, Natalie Ozma, they were there from the beginning and they reviewed every script and they attended every screening. And we got a little into when we talked about Encanto again in our Destination D23 episodes, we talked about this Colombian cultural trust, but they had experts in all areas, music, art and culture. And then they had Familia. The, those are the people from inside the studio who read every script, attended every screening, and um, they were very honest with their feedback. And they sort of stressed that, the, how much honesty there was with 
the feedback they received. So I got the impression there was an abundance of honesty in the feedback at the screenings. Yeah. So, yeah. And they, and their hope was that everyone would see themselves um, in the film. And then there was a Q&A. The first few questions were prepared by Tracy Timmer. And then, um, then the others were um, fr- from the listeners. So they said, uh, after Zootopia, uh, Jared and Byron agreed that they wanted to work on a musical. So they asked, what led you to that decision? Um, they said they, they loved music and Jared was having an incredible experience with Lynn. And they said, um, In the Heights was in production and Hamilton hadn't been made. So they thought listening, um, listening to music for the next five years would be awesome. And then they asked, and the next question was, how was working with Lynn on Moana and in Kanto? Was it the same and it was different or was it different? And they said the key difference was Lynn was brought in late on Moana. And on Encanto, Lynn was part of the creative team on day one. So they knew what the stories and the goals of the characters were and how they would get there musically. And I I think that's pretty evident in it. Like, there is no doubt that Lin-Manuel Miranda has a, a place in Moana that is, like, carved out for him. But it really, really, really is only showcased through the musical side. And I feel like with with in, uh, with Moana in particular, besides really the first song in it that goes over, you know, Moana, the island, the family, everyone, I feel like that's the only song that furthers the story uh, in that movie. Everything else is a song that is a, a moment a snapshot of that point in the movie. Whereas in Kanto, you can, even though I don't think that all of them are created equally, I think you can make a better argument that all of the songs in Encanto help to further the story of the movie. And the only, only way they can truly accomplish that is if the songwriter is an active part of the storytelling. So I, I can definitely see the difference in his involvement uh, on Moana versus Encanto. And, you know, whether whether or not I feel like Encanto was a better success for him than Moana, that's, that's a different story. But I, I can definitely see that he was more involved this time around. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I just thought that, yeah, his musical imprint was much more pronounced yeah. in, the, in, in the entire way through the entire mm-hmm. way through. And I, I, I think it's, it's for a good reason because I think he is a fantastic songwriter and I, I, I know he knows how to tell stories through songs, but it's at the same time too. the downside that I have with Encanto is that I, I feel like there's too much of a reliance on the songs at some point to sell the story. And when I don't connect with the songs, if I can't remember them after the fact, then that also doesn't serve to help me remember necessary, uh, the, the plot points necessarily the plot points of the movie. And 
That that's something I've been saying about Encanto the entire time. It's the songs are to me were somewhat forgettable, so it didn't leave an impact on me overall. Uh, but my my feelings have changed a little bit on it, and I know we'll continue going over this as we we talk about it. Do you think that the reason for we don't talk about Bruno's popularity because it hit number one on the Billboard mm-hmm. charts as of the day this is recording is because it's the one song that is hummable and the words can actually be remembered <laughs> i i don't know if it's because of the words being remembered but i think it literally all has to do with social media and it, it, it's weird because i i will not sit here and pretend that i understand everything that the billboard top 100 counts i'm i'm pretty sure it just means like how many plays a song has gotten and someone can correct me. I probably should have went on and researched it myself, but I'm pretty sure it comes down to how much plays it's had on either streaming services or radio and that, that compiles it. But the reason why people found out about the song and really in Kanto is very, very heavily through social media on Instagram reels and TikTok with these little snippets of it. And Ultimately, you know, people hear a part of the song and then they're driven to listen to the full song and then find out that it is an earworm and then continue listening to it over and over again. I think outside of the context of the movie, I think a lot of the people who are listening to the song might not have even watched the entire movie. They just enjoy the song for what it is. And that's not a terrible thing. You know, that's actually the sign of a really well-written song. If you don't Mm -hmm. need the context of the movie to really sell the song for what it is. Uh, And I, I think the reason why I might be a little bit right in that is that if you look back at other Disney music throughout the years, uh, you know, the last song that has achieved any sort of success close to it was let it go. And that was a big hit on YouTube. You know, people shared videos of it. Uh, they they uploaded videos of it sung in however many different languages. But that was kind of the only outlet for it was YouTube. And that was kind of it. So it wasn't able to achieve like next level status. And before that, a lot of music from Disney movies didn't even have YouTube. And they didn't have MTV or VH1 to promote music videos of it. They literally just had, here's the song. And, you know, it's releasing as part of the soundtrack and see how far it can go from there. So I feel like we've now finally reached a level where Disney music moving forward has a better chance of seeing mainstream success versus what opportunities were presented before, because there's more outlets for it to find an audience versus if you didn't see the movie, you didn't know about the song. You didn't know to buy the soundtrack or buy the single. And then, you know, leading from there. So Bruno is odd, but I think will be important in the long run. You know, granted, it should be important because of the success that it's had. But I think it will also be something that gets studied in terms of how Disney music can affect people moving forward. But it's mm-hmm. not the best song in the movie. I will say that till my dying breath it is it is not even in my top three songs in the movie <laughs> uh, what are your top three songs in the film i i like the family madrigal yeah i, I like I, that one it's even though i am with you that i cannot really sing 
most of it. Well, I, I just can't because even of how fast it moves. <laughs> I'm not sure what all the lyrics are. <laughs> yeah, it it just it's so quick that uh, the song moves so fast that it's really really hard to keep up with it. But it's still a good song. Um mm-hmm. and I like I like the final song of the the movie and I apologize I do not remember the the title of it but the wrap up song as the the spoiler alert for it as the house is coming back together and they're resolving everything I mm-hmm. I I think that works a lot and then I love 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 the song that I don't understand because it's all sung in Spanish um that kind of happens around the resolution of uh again to spoil it with uh with mirabelle and abuela i i think that song is just absolutely gorgeous and it's gorgeous they have the translation i think in the closing credits they they do they do and and, and it's all about butterflies and stuff. <laughs> it's well i mean yeah the butterfly is flying with it i i just think it's it is perfect and it is so different from what you're used to hearing so those are kind of my three favorite songs and everything else just feels like little little glimpses into the different moments of the movie not that they're bad songs just they did not resonate with me but they've mm-hmm. clearly resonated with other people yes yeah, absolutely i think one of the things about let it go one of the, that sort of propelled the film was didn't they release Let It Go like weeks before the film onto YouTube? I don't remember if it was on YouTube, but I mean it it was released originally. The first time it was sung was at D twenty three Expo mm-hmm. in twenty thirteen. You were in yeah, that I panel. That. I see yeah, that remember one. That. I am so mad about that. Uh, because I, I went to the live action panel with you and Tom, but I skipped the the animated one. And then the way you were raving about it, I was like, "Why did I waste my entire first day not going to this big <laughs> panel?" So then that's why I went to the the second day with the live action. But yeah, you you got to see it at that one, and that was the first time it got sung. And I know they published videos of that performance that Adina Menzel did on it and it kind of started to grow from there and you know it did technically come out a little bit earlier because uh world of color winter dreams showcased it as part of that show at uh, dca um that was like i think a week or two before the movie came out in theaters so it, it they they set the groundwork for it but i you know with frozen I, I also don't think with like Let It Go in, in the movie in general, I don't remember it being like a big hit the first couple weeks of it being out in theaters. I remember it picking up steam in December and then January they re-released it as a sing-along and February it continued being released in that, that form too. And I feel like that's the same life that Encanto has seen. That, you know, it while it wasn't re-released in theaters it kind of picked up steam right around Christmas and then January is when it really, really kicked into high gear. So I, I think there's a lot of similarities, at least between the two movies, uh, just maybe now Disney music has a bigger audience than it did back then. 
Well, now, the, the next question was, what was it like working on the film um, remotely during the pandemic? And they said it was tough. Uh, they went home when production on the characters began. Then the next day, they started strong, um, you know, doing all the discussions. Mm-hmm. And they said it was a tribute to um, the production team and that everyone uh, pulled together. And then, uh, then the, then there was a question for Byron. Um, how do you draw, um, let's see, how do you draw on your background in animation when directing? And he said he worked on King of the Jungle, which of course became Lion King, when everyone wanted to work on Pocahontas. And then, then he saw the surge in CG and then the change in animation after Lilo and Stitch. And so he said it's this hundred years of dedication at Walt Disney, um, animation that just inspires everyone to work so hard. And in, um, then Jared said Byron is a mentor and a teacher and is the best at getting emotion and drama across. Um, and he teaches that to others. And Yvette then said that Jared can see the storyboards and then, um, sort of, uh, then, and then somehow and translate the story then to the scene or to the screen, I should say. And then, the next question is, did you draw on your family dynamics when working on this film? And Yvette said that the family is Mexican and American. Her family is Mexican and American. And she had three other sisters. And so that was everywhere in the film. And Jared said working on the film is therapy and it helped him to understand his family differently. And Byron uh, has an Italian grandmother and who had three sisters and they were the core of the family. And his grandfather built a large house in Italy and there was a floor for each of his five sons and their families to live in. Can you imagine? (laughs) And, And then due to the depression, they had to move and they, and they scattered like around the world. And so from the letters, he read how much pain it brought them all to be separated. So, and then, and then, um, did they consider having a villain in the film? And they said there was so much going on with the family dynamics. They didn't need a villain for conflict in early storyboards. They had another house that was, um, competitive with the Madrigal house. Um, And then in another version, another script, they had the house in love with another house, but there was a house in between that was in the way. And so they said, maybe they'll have that in the sequel. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then um, Jared was asked what, um, who's your favorite character? And he said, Maribel, because she, he is the most like her and feels the most connection, connection to. Um, she has issues with self-worth and she does, you know, and does she measure up to those around her? And he feels, uh, sort of a connection to that working at Walt Disney animation and, and it, you know, she is a dork and an underdog. And so is he in high school. Yeah. Yeah. And Byron said, um, Antonio, 
came into the story very early and he liked the emotional depth he brought to the film and his relationship with Maribel because he's a little shy and he's an old soul. And, you know, there's always someone like that in the family gets along more with the animals, you know, than with the people, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the easiest characters to, adapt to right away because besides Mirabel, it's it's the first character that you see that really showcases uh, a vulnerable side to him you know it, getting ready to go see what door he gets but being too afraid to go alone and needing Mirabel beside him i mean it's it, it's one of the most moving moments of the entire movie so a, a great character Absolutely. And then he uses his gift to help out Mirabelle when she needs help because the rats, you know, give bring him in on, on what's going on. Yeah. And plus yeah. with comic relief, too. And on yes. top of it all. So <laughs> yes. Even more perfect. Yeah. And the vet said uh, Mirabelle and Felix. She said they're the best hands down. Yeah. And, but she didn't get into it too much. Why? Um, and uh, they, they also like the... Um, they like the creativity of fans on TikTok, like you brought up before us, Craig. So, oh, you, of course, somebody posted on our, you know, Connecting Us Wall Twitter page. Did you see the Country Bears version of um, We Don't Talk About Bruno? I, I did. And I am not <laughs> trying to be a wet sponge with it. It annoys me so much. I just, <laughs> I don't like the song. I, I think. <laughs> I, I understand why people are, are gripping onto it, but I don't like it. So it doesn't matter what they they can attach the country bears to it. It still does not connect with me. It just it kind of annoys me more and more that like there are there are a couple good songs in the movie that I love, and it's like eh, let's ignore that one. Let's go with the one that can be attached to thirty second clips on social media and have a second life is a song that doesn't attach itself to the movie at all. Just like, Oh, anything that we can, we can kind of throw that same style into. And I see it. I see it in shows that we're doing when people are like, is Pete around? Can we talk about where Pete is? And it's, I know they're looking for a same. No, we don't talk about Pete. It's stuff <laughs> <like> a, <laughs> oh, I saw somebody. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not lost comments. on me. I, I get it all. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but have your fun. Enjoy it. Now, there was something from their um, Columbia trip that didn't make it into the film. And that was the what they called the Chiva bus. And they said, rather, so this would have changed the ending. Rather than going down to the river, the family left the Encanto and went to a city. And they had the conversation between Abuela and Mirabel in front of of a mural depicting their grandfather. And then they all rode a Chiva bus. I, I think the ending they chose was had a bigger emotional impact. Uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> think that was the right way to go. Um, I'm looking up what a Chiva bus is right now, and I cannot picture it in the context of the movie. Uh, but also... It, I mean, that's part of it too. It's like a chief of us seem like that would, that would kind of dictate this movie being in a time where cars were a thing. And I don't, 
I don't necessarily see that movie in that. Like, there's obviously some context to it that would be a, lead it to believe, like, oh yeah, it's, you know, you don't really know what time period it's in, but it seems like it seems like it is a fairy tale, like more uh, pre pre our time period, and mm-hmm. I like the idea of that. I agree. I wouldn't want them to take us out of it and bring us into the modern world. Yeah, exactly. And then this is the final question, and it wasn't like I was hanging on to this to the end. This was the last question. Why do you think We Don't Talk About Bruno is so popular? Byron said, because it's so far, the um, it, it, it's, it's, it's the way everyone's voice blends in. Um, Yvette said, uh, it's her first grader says everyone at school is sinking it. So she doesn't really answer the question, but no, I I think it comes down to the way that the song, uh, the, the basic premise of the song, not necessarily the words, but the actual music behind it, the dun, 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 uh, like that is something that you can attach any words to and you are still going to feel that music. And it just happens that with the actual music that they wrote to it, it's the, we don't talk about Bruno. It can be applied to a million things. You know, it's, we don't talk about P like it can be that it can be, it, it, it can be anything. And then you can take that and you can transform it another way. And like with how social media is today with TikTok, it, you can put a song like we don't talk about Bruno to it. And the context of the video can be like, oh, I don't want to tell you the secret. And I'm going to use this song to tell you I'm not going to tell you the secret. And all of a sudden it gains a second life. So it's just I, I don't know if this song 10 years ago would have had the same impact that it does now if it wasn't for the current state of the world, if it wasn't for TikTok, if it wasn't for Instagram. Uh, it's I think the beat would still attract people, but the fact that there's an outlet that people can use the song in a different way, I, I think that's, that makes the biggest difference to it. Uh, we live in a different society than we did 10 years ago, yeah, 20 years true. ago. Yeah. Now, Jared said it's because the music keeps changing, and Lynn wrote it so that you had to listen to it over and over to hear who is singing what. He said there's so much to explore in the song. Mm. I don't know if I agree with that, because I only hear people talk about the same parts of it. So, I, I don't see people showcase the entire song. It's really all based around, you know, the first lines with... We don't talk about Bruno and it was my wedding day and in that part. But, you know, that that might just be what served in front of me, not necessarily what the reality of the situation is. Now, we each in preparation for this episode, we each rewatched Encanto this past week. So did you um, I don't know, did you did, did your appreciation for it change in any way with the second rewatch? Yeah, I, I do like it more than I did the first time around. Uh, I am not. I, I I'm not really lying when I say that I truly did not care for it at all the first time around. Um, I I'm not holding back from that. I I just really didn't like it. And the second time around, I saw some things in the characters that 
made me appreciate it a little bit more. Uh, I heard a little bit more of like the score in the in the movie that kind of helped tie it all together. I still feel like it's overly long. I feel like there's some songs that didn't need to take place in it, but I I I, I like it more as a movie. I still don't think it's. I I don't think it's perfect. I think I think Moana is a better movie. I think Tangled is a better movie. I'd argue that Frozen is Frozen's at least comparable to it, if not better. Uh, but it's also not on the level of Wreck It Ralph two, and it's not it's not in the level of some of the bad Disney movies of the past ten years or even twenty years. Like I would I would watch Encanto. Uh, over and over compared to even Zootopia, which I know I know a lot of people would disagree with me on that, but I still don't like Zootopia. I would watch it before Home on the Range. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot I would watch it before, but it's not it's not that classic to me. I will not return to it over and over again like I have other Disney movies. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it more the second time. I liked it the first time. Again, it's not one of my big favorites, but I enjoyed it. I, I like the story. I, I, I think I like the, I don't know. I like the artistry behind it, the colors behind it. And, um, so it it is one that I'll watch again and all that. I, I agree with the, I agree with your comparisons and that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I enjoy Moana more and I love Tangled also, but um, I, I enjoy, I enjoy Encanto. Yeah. It's up, it's up there with like Luca for me. I I feel like it's in that level. It's not, to me, it's not top tier, but it's in that, it's in that next step down. And a lot of it is they had a lot of characters they had to work with, with the movie. And there's a lot of the characters that I don't like. Like I, I will Stand by it. I I know that it is a cultural thing, but Abuela is so unlikable in the movie. I still don't believe. I don't believe her turn in it at all. Like I, I, I don't understand how she just decides at the drop of a hat. No, you know what? I was wrong. Like it doesn't. It doesn't register with me. I mean, she is. She's kind of terrible to Mirabelle <laughs> when you really look she at is. it and. So I'm not I'm not there with all of the characters and I feel like some get some of them get a little bit more redemption than others and those ones work but I think they were just trying to do too much with it and they didn't take enough time to resolve the ones that were more important uh ultimately in the long run you know there was there were some relationships like that they really were integral, like the the relationship with Abuela that needed to be uh, completely locked in stone on on their relationship and how it was all going to turn out, and it just felt rushed. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm sure there's also people who said no, completely disagree. I've had that relationship, I've been a part of that, and I totally, I totally reflect with it. It just that didn't reflect with me. And that's that's okay. I'm I we're not always going to be the number one audience for every single movie. And that's that's like with me with Zootopia. 
I think Zootopia is way too heavy-handed in the message, but a lot of people need that heavy-handed message to truly understand what's being said, and that's not lost on me too. Uh, it's it, it's a beautiful part of watching movies. It's you, you know what connects with you, and sometimes it connects with another person. But if you can come together and talk about it, that's the most important part. Right. No, I agree with you. Absolutely. Well, the next panel that I attended was just a couple of days later. And that this was on Walt Disney Zorro. And it was with author and Disney historian Bill Cotter. And the host for this one from the museum was Maya Colbert. And um, so... Craig, have you ever watched the Zorro television series? I've watched the series uh, as a whole um, through the Disney Treasures set, but I haven't actually sat down and watched the individual, uh, the movie that's on Disney Plus that you can watch. The Sign of Zorro. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I watched it when I was young um, because it went into syndication um, when I was really little. And then for a while it was on when um, the Disney Channel, when it was new, it was on, um, they called the Disney Vault, and it was on late at night. And it was basically Disney's classic series and yeah. films and things like that. I, and Bill Cotter brought the Zorro series to that. I actually watched the intro to it uh, in preparation for our conversation uh, because it had been so long since I've revisited uh, Disney Vault on Disney Channel. I, I can like watching it; it completely like just brought me back to that period in time. Uh, just like to describe it, it was it was like they took you into a dark ride through the Disney vault, you know, it, it opened up and you were going past all these Disney scenes going past, uh, the, uh, the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland and Davy Crockett. And you were just the love bug. Exactly. Yeah. You were riding through this dark ride of these Disney classics. And as soon as I watched that, I was like, Oh my gosh, this was, this was a massive part of my childhood that, I just wish I was a little bit older when it was all happening so I could appreciate it more. It just, I was a little, I was a little on the young side that I remember it perfectly, but I wish I had even stronger memories of it. Yeah, this is, this is the golden age of the Disney Channel. I, I love this version of the Disney Channel. So, and then anyway, so Bill Cotter uh, said that he watched the Mickey Mouse Club with his brother and that led to his working at the Walt Disney Studios in 1976, which is where he met his wife. And he founded an employees club, um, that was all, that all was surrounded the classic Disney TV shows. And that's how they, they all, they enjoyed rewatching all the old shows. And then he authored a book on, um, Disney television shows, um, the wonderful world of Disney television, a complete history. Uh, the book is out of print now. I have it in my collection, but it's, it's very comprehensive. And he's written 13 books altogether. And he said Zorro is his favorite of the Disney television shows. And he said the series was a huge hit from start to finish. And, um, Lou, um, Debney was his, was Walt's right hand man. And in the credits of, um, 
the of the TV shows and series, you uh, you know he was uh, you know you see his name in in all of those, and he was still at the studio in 1976 when Bill started, and he said the Zorro sets were still on the back lot, and so Lou helped him to document the series, and so Zorro though initially began in 1919 is a pulp magazine by Johnson uh, McCulley. And the story was titled The Curse of the Capistrano. And it was a hit. It was very popular. So Johnson McCulley wrote uh, more and more stories. What was nice is he lived long enough to see the start of Walt Disney's television series before he passed. Um, Then there were some films. There was the, uh, a silent film with Douglas Fairbanks, the Mark of Zorro. Then there was, um, the Tyrone Power did a, did a, a, a talkie. Um, it was also called the Mark of Zorro. And then the Disney series went in more into the psyche and the characters, uh, character development of Don Diego than the, the previous two films did. And so um, Walt's dream of building, you know, dreamt of building Disneyland, but he didn't have the money. So Walt bought the rights to Zorro under Wed Enterprises because Roy wouldn't um, pay for it. So um, so then Walt wanted this series to be um, authentic. So he sent a crew to Mexico to take photos, and they spent $35,000 on furnishings for the series. And some were later used in other films, like in The Parent Shop. And then ABC Television then said that they would um, help finance Disneyland if Walt did a television show. And, of course, that became the television show titled Disneyland. So Walt shelved Zorro. But then... With the popularity of the Disneyland television series, ABC wanted another TV show, and Walt needed the money to expand Disneyland, and he already had the rights to Zorro, he had already invested in it, and he didn't want to do a pilot, but so he just launched right into producing the series. And so they built the sets for Pueblo de Los Angeles at a cost of $100,000, and it was later replaced by a parking lot in the 1990s, a parking structure in the 1990s. And um, Bill showed a model of the whole set, the outdoor set that they, um, that they used. And it was really detailed, this set. Um, the De La Viega Hacienda was built in a soundstage with a cyclorama for the backgrounds because they had um, daytime and nighttime background scenes. And then the water tower, though, became an issue because it would pop up in the views. And so Walt was under pressure to tear it down. Um, and it wasn't just for the Zorro series. It was for everything they were using the back lot for this water tower was a problem, but it was needed for water pressure on the lot. So it stayed. And uh, so Disney also used the Zorro set for other things like monkeys go home. Oh, the treasure of Matacumbe. And they rented it out to other studios as well. So they, um, they also built in, and they went into such details. They like, 
Walt had to build an adobe oven, even though it was never shown in the series. There were also lots of wheelbarrows and other props that were purchased from Mexico to put all around um, the the set also. And so scripts are being written, sets are being built, um, but they needed a star. And there was a lot of interest in this because Bill said everybody wanted to be the next Fess Parker. Um, because of his success with Davy Crockett, and also because they wanted the cut of merchandise that um, Fess had in his contract. So, um, so people that showed interest and were considered included, these are big actors at the time, um, Hugh O'Brien, Dennis Weaver, um, Jack Kelly, John Lupton, who was in The Great Train Robbery, the, the Disney film. And actually he was the primary one that Walt wanted for a long time, but he was committed to another, um, series. And, um, which I don't remember that I didn't jot down the name of the series. But I remember it was one I watched when I was a boy and, and it, it was a Western kind of thing. And, um, Walt was even looking into how, what would it cost to get him out of that contract? He was so serious. And David Jansen was another one. But then Walt decided he wanted the character of Zorro to be more important than the actor. So then he decided he wanted to go with an unknown so that the actor wouldn't overshadow the character. So they looked at between two to 300 actors and they called in a few for screen tests on the set to test for the role. And so um, Armando Silvestri was a popular actor in Mexico and he came close. And so Walt figured, well, in the United States, people wouldn't know who he was, but he came very close to being chosen. But Walt felt he didn't have the presence for Zorro. And there, but there are photos of actors in the archives, but the problem is there are no names and Disney didn't keep the film of all the screen tests. So there are 4,000 photos of the Zorro production in the archive. So Bill showed uh, some of the photos of the unknown actors who were doing screen tests for Zorro, hoping that, you know, does anybody know these people? Um, Tony Russo was almost Zorro. Um, he was an excellent swordsman, but Walt felt he didn't come across as sincere, um, that he was too self-confident with the character. Uh, Walt wanted the character to have self-doubt. And um, because if you remember from the television series, um, you know, the character Zorro had to pretend he was a bookworm, bookworm and sort of, um, a, a, you know, more interested, it was sort of a fop as they would have said back in those days and not the, um, athletic swordsman that, um, Zorro was because he had to protect his, you know, his identity. So he had a lot of, he was tortured by that. Um, because, you know, he could never get the girl because if he felt it would put her in danger, if, um, if his identity were found out, you know, things like that. So, but the problem with Tony Russo also was his agent leaked. He had the role and that, uh, didn't make Walt too happy. 
So, but he would later um, guest star um, in the series. So, um, and then, um, then, then um, Britt Lehman, um, he was considered, he was a good swordsman and a good um, Montesiero. Is that how he says his name? The, the villain. He was very good at that one. And so that basically he got hired um, for to be the villain. And you can see the resemblance between him and the next actor who was brought in. And that was Guy Williams. And he was a New Yorker of Italian descent. He had some minor acting roles, um, like Bonzo Goes to College. Um, he had acted in the series Highway Patrol. And, and also, um, I was a teenage werewolf. Um, but he wa- but he watched the, he would go up on the hill above the studio and he'd watch the sets being built and he dreamt about getting the part of Zorro. So, um, when he did the screen test, Walt knew that Guy Williams was his Zorro. Um, he could bring in the right amount of angst and he could be playful and he was familiar with sword work. So, the, so Guy got hired. Then they needed Sergeant Garcia, and they first brought in um, Alan Reed, and he was less sloppy, and he was, the role was first written to be too comic, and that, so Alan Reed played him that way, and Walt didn't like the role being too being so comic. And unfortunately, that meant Alan Reed was out. But Henry Calvin got the job because the role was sort of um, rewritten. But you don't have to feel sorry for Alan Reed because he would go on to become the voice of Fred Flintstone. So, and then, then it was all about getting Guy Williams ready for the role of Soro. So they tried to make, um, they, they tried different face masks that would cover the mustache because they were thinking, well, you know, if you can see the mustache and his face and the build and all that, but it covered too much of his face. And they figured, well, you know, if, if Clark Kent can wear glasses and people don't recognize that he's Superman, then they can figure out, okay, the mask will be enough that people won't recognize that Don Diego is uh, Zorro. So they and said that everybody said Guy was very friendly. He was personable on the first day all the way to the last day of filming. He was very approachable. And they said a lot of Guy um, Williams, a lot of his personality made it to the screen. And he was given um, sword work, um, singing and guitar lessons, but they dubbed his singing on the show. His horse was named Diamond Decorator. That was his co-star, and they, he got along very well with his horse. And then after many iterations, they finalized the hat and the um, mask and the cape and the sword. And they said the cape wasn't like period authentic, but they felt that he needed a cape and it needed to be leather and you know, just for movement and shine or the sheen and, you know, all of that. And then they built... um a library set, and they filmed Guy Williams talking about Zorro. 
And then he came out as Zorro. And this was to convince the ABC um, affiliates, the sponsors, and the merchandisers to sign on to the show. And this film has been lost. And Bill Cotter's just hoping that someday someone's going to be in the archives in one of the warehouses and they're going to open a box and they're going to find this film in there. So then... It's the Disneyland show's fourth anniversary episode and um, fourth anniversary show. And it's so, so September 11th, 1957. And basically, Walt runs a commercial for Zorro. And this is where that famous photo of Walt sitting in a director's chair surrounded by the Musketeers and Tommy Kirk comes from. Um it it was it was a great intro to the show um by the end all the musketeers are pretending to they're zorro and they're making the sign of the z in the air and all of that i mean you couldn't have asked for a better promotion um for kids for the show um he said they spent um $35,000 on the furnishings and then another $30,000 on props and then they also, which was a lot of money for a television series back in the day. And then they used, Walt also used more extras in the scenes and in the background, um, to, cause he wanted to make the scenes come alive and to make them believable. So all of this was driving up the cost of the series. And then there were the women of Zero, uh, of Zorro. And like I mentioned earlier, this was a torment of Don Diego because he was trying to woo women and then he would go off to fight villains. And then there, and then barmaids were, were added to do dancing. And that would just, you know, bring in some music and, and other interests into the, into the series. But what I didn't know is Rita Moreno, um, guested twice on the show. Oh, wow. Dancing. So, yeah, so that's it. And I, I think she might be in the sign of Zorro. Not sure, but anyway. And then they, then they did audience surveys and the adults liked the romance, but the kiddies didn't. So they dialed down the romance in this series. And Annette Funicello was a big fan of Zorro and of Guy Williams. So for her 16th birthday, Walt gave her a part on the show. And then they gave her another role for the hour-long episodes. And then many episodes um, had historical backgrounds, um, the, uh, things about like, like there were bandits in it. There were, um, soldiers not being paid. They dealt with drought. They dealt with indentured servants. And he showed some of the scenes, uh, of, of these, uh, topics being dealt with. And he said some subjects were controversial. Uh, for instance, there was a scene where a rich fellow played by Jonathan Harris would, of course, go on to co-star with Guy Williams in Lost in Space. Jonathan Harris was Dr. Zachary Smith. Um, so they showed, um, he, anyway, he's a rich merchant or something. And he, anyway, he's buying a, a, a candelabra from a peddler. Well, back in those days, uh, uh, someone in the upper class like that would never hand the money directly to someone beneath them. So what he did was he 
the Jonathan Harris character, he handed the money to his servant, who then handed it to the peddler. So there are a lot of little details in there. Uh, there are a couple of other controversial things I picked up in the um, Sign of Zorro when I watched it on Disney Plus as well that they um, tackled. Now, in the day, the average cost of a half-hour show was $13,840. Of course, Walt was not, this Zorro was not, did not cost this. Walt was spending $82,000. So, so no one advertiser could handle sponsoring this show at this cost. So 7-Up and AC Delco would alternate commercials. So they would run a commercial for 7-Up, and then they would say, and now here's a word from our other sponsor, AC Delco. And they would just go back and forth with the commercials. So, um, and then, and then what was nice is Disney kept this in house because the commercials were animated by, of course, the Disney animators. So, so the Zorro brand was everywhere. There were board games. There were trading cards. And because Zorro was filmed in black and white, the trading cards were all hand colored. Um, there were jigsaw puzzles. There were watches, records, comic books. There were live appearances by the actors with a stunt show at Disneyland, um, followed by autograph sessions. And, um, they finally found um, the Disney History Institute, and we, we've had them on the show. They, um, talked about, uh, they, they found uncovered footage that somebody had on a visit to Disneyland where they recorded the stunt show that Guy Williams did as Zorro at Disneyland. And so they showed that. And it was really cool because they're jumping from building the building and they end up doing a sword fight on the Mark Twain oh, and, wow. and jumping off of it. It was amazing. This, this sword play. So, um, and this was one of the few shows that Walt did in black and white. And because he didn't think there would be a market for it overseas. So, uh, you know, the, for an overseas theatrical release. Yeah, so he yeah. did the U.S. theatrical release that is on D Disney Plus. But, um, later they were colorized, the, the series, but, um, it was never filmed in color. Hmm. So, and then, uh, and then this was so popular that the sponsors and affiliates and executives all wanted to visit, visit the Zorro set. They wanted to meet Guy Williams, but they kept getting in the way. So the studio had to start pushing back in, on, on the visits. So the Nielsen ratings, um, for the show in 1957 and 58, they had a 35.7 audience share. And in 1958 to 59, it had a 38.9 audience share, which was, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And all that. But then due to a legal battle with ABC, um, because, uh, Walt activated uh, the clause in the contract to buy out ABC's interest in Disneyland. And this started a whole thing. 
Um, because, you know, Walt was all about wanting to own everything at Disneyland, the concessions and all that. And one of the big things he did was he wanted to own Disneyland outright. So when he uh, activated that clause, ABC got upset. And so they challenged then Walt on who owned the rights to the Mickey Mouse Club, Zorro, Davy Crockett, and all that. And so Walt just thought, you know what? Fine, I am not going to deal with you. And so Walt pulled the plug on all the shows. And so that's why all those shows at the height of their popularity were all canceled. So, but it lives on um, for, um, you know, the Disney Channel, like I mentioned earlier, he did get it to air on Vault Disney. And now the, um, the the sign of Zorro is on Disney Plus. I'm hoping that they will bring the series back someday to to Disney Plus. But they're not doing so good pulling from their vault. They must have lost the combination um, lately. Yeah, I mean so. we've been talking about it over the past couple months. It, it it was positive at first, and now it just keeps getting increasingly increasingly disappointing in terms of how much they're they're pulling from the the vault and maybe that can turn around one day but i i i find it hard to believe that they're going to just change their mind in their current strategy which i i don't even understand their current strategy so it's hard for them to change when i don't think they know what people want out of disney plus yeah i don't know i don't know so now it was um Walt's so but what it came down to is Zorro. It was Walt's vision to bring this bring it to television and Guy and it was Guy Williams who made the character come to life. So then we had the QA, and so Bill Cotter was asked what was his favorite episode. And he said the first 13 episodes because they were the long story arc of Montesiero, um, however he pronounces his name. And he said then the rest were standalones. And that's basically what the sign of Zorro is. It's really an hour and a half version of those first 13 episodes in there. And then the other, um, the other of his favorite episodes is when his father learned the truth that Don Diego was Zorro and not just a refined wine loving dandy, you know, so, and he asked, do, do any costumes um, still exist? He said when he was working in the archives on his book, Dave Smith was all excited and said, you won't believe this. We found Guy Williams Zorro costume and he held it up and, Bill thought it was awfully large, even even if Guy was six foot three inches. And then he looked inside it and saw on the tag it said H. Calvin, and for Henry Calvin. And he said, well, you know, in several episodes, Sergeant Garcia pretended he was Zorro. So this is Henry Calvin's costume. And um, Dave was very disappointed and said, oh, no, we've already put out a press release that we found Guy Williams' Zorro costume, <laughs> so don't tell anyone. <laughs> so Dave was Dave was really excited. He was quick to issue that I press bet. release. My bet. Yeah. Um, but it, it, so it was later downplayed. 
And until they did find Guy Williams' actual costume, and it has been on display at, at several D23 events. And then Bill Cotter said, this is going to be another one of our little pet peeves, Craig, that we've talked about. Bill Cotter said Disney has all the music tracks from Zorro. And he's been trying to convince Walt Disney Music that there is an audience for a multi-album set. Oh, where is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know. Again, we've talked about how... um, you know, it seems like Walt Disney Music, all they're interested in is those picture discs and things. Yeah. So. No, I, 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 it's hard to believe something like that. Um, just, just on the outset of everything that ha- uh, Disney has released, and they just don't seem interested in releasing anything that kind of goes any earlier than the 80s and, you know, through through uh now day and if it's in a picture disc sure why not but something something like even with zorro i i doubt we ever have that see the light of day no i don't think so i i I would be surprised it'd be nice if we got at least like one (laughs) disc of some like zorro's greatest hits or something i don't know but um maybe i think annette i'm pretty sure annette sang a song when she appeared on it, I think she sang. You yeah. think they would pull that? And, and of course, you know, out of the night, you know, the, the theme song and, you know, a couple of other songs, you know, yeah. there's probably a, at least one Zorro love song. In, but in with batch. Annette and streaming, they already have so many of her songs on there that like, why do you need to pull something else? So that, that's my only argument with that. But yeah, um, I don't know. yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Ultimately, though, it's not, it, it's not something that I'm okay with. I wish, I wish they would expand out a little bit more towards what more people would probably enjoy. But they're also they're unwilling to explore what people might enjoy. Uh, you know, it's it, it, and that's that's just that's just aggravating like put stuff out there see what people actually want if if you put something out and no one pays attention to it you know what uh, that's fine that's okay don't do that again but give give the music give movies a chance before you just shutter them away mm-hmm. well i hope you enjoyed uh you know, being with me on these members-only panels at the Walt Disney Family Museum put on. And if you want to also be a part of these member-only panels, you can become a member and support the mission of the Walt Disney Family Museum, which, of course, helps us all keep our connection to Walt alive, just as this show tries to do. So if you go to WaltDisney.org, and you can find out information about upcoming activities, events, buy tickets to the museum, and also find out how to be a museum member. Um, I'm a charter member, and I have never regretted it. <laughs> so, um, and and I'll, I'll definitely bring, um, you know, share more panels with you as time goes on. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. <laughs> I 
can never remember who starts, how we should start out. It's, I think it's my turn this week, isn't it? Uh, it should be your turn. However, yeah. last week I was not prepared, so I pushed it on you. So okay. technically this week it should be my week, but okay. it's it, I, I can go if you're ready go for ahead. me to go. Oh, no, yeah, go ahead. My fun fact from this week is not probably nearly as exciting as you would hope for it to be, but I tried to theme this one a little bit. Uh, you know, this is this is the week that the Olympics is beginning uh, for for all of us around the world, and yes, it is uh, the for winter, better or for worse. <laughs> well, that is that is a good point, and uh, we'll have to see how it all plays out uh, these Beijing Olympics, uh, but. But uh, this week in uh, in the entire Disney history, in uh, 2004, to be precise, there was a movie that was released, the, a Disney movie that focused on a very important event in the Olympic history for the United States, specifically the 1980 Winter Olympics. And uh, the movie that was released was Miracle starring Disney legend Kurt Russell. And I felt like it was a good one to bring up uh, at this point in time. You know, so many people watch Disney movies, uh, the sports movies, like Remember the Titans mm -hmm. and and Mighty Ducks. And I've always felt like Miracle was one that never really got a lot of the praise that it deserved. And, and granted, there's been so, so many good disney sports inspirational movies throughout the years but like cool runnings that's the one i thought you were going to bring well, up and uh, you know the jamaican <laughs> bobsled team is supposedly yeah. in the olympics this year whether or not we ever see them on tv uh that's that's to be decided uh by by the powers that be but uh, i mean there's there are so so many good ones uh even like you know in some of the recent ones uh mcfarland usa million dollar mm -hmm. arm uh, i it, it's never it's never too long between the last great disney sports movie but for me miracle like it, it just it hits that sweet spot granted i am a hockey fan more than any other sports um i i love hockey you know pittsburgh penguins i am i i am i i bleed that black and glue blue blood black black and gold blood uh, of a penguins fan and um i i think it is just such a good movie and it, it's one that with the olympics being a part of our our current time period i feel like it, it's and it's an it's not important to remember, but, you know, if you're not watching the Olympics for whatever reason, you might not be watching. Maybe at the very least you can watch a movie based on the Olympics. And, uh, and Miracle is a, a good choice, at least in my book. I agree. I think it's a terrific film. Yeah, and I agree it did not get the buzz that some of the other Disney sports films have gotten in the past. I Yeah, and I it kind of came out in that time after Pirates of the Caribbean and I think similarly close to uh, Haunted Mansion so it was it was at a kind of a rough period I would say in Disney movies where it's like everything kind of got compared to Pirates of the Caribbean and that just was not feasible that was kind of a movie that lived on its own so it was unfair to compare anything to it but it, it obviously did if it had the Disney name on it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, well, my, uh, my interesting history tidbit took place on February 10th, 1906. This was a turning point for the uh, Disney family because Elias Disney sold his Chicago house on Trip Avenue to Walter Chamberlain and Elias, his wife, Flora, and their five children, Herbert, Raymond, Roy, Walter, and Ruth, all packed their bags and moved to Marceline, Missouri, which would be a turning point in Walt's life. And Walt's just always felt that those are some of the best years of his childhood and that all the best, the, every, the most important things that happened to him happened in Marceline. Yeah. And, uh, I, and, and we never would know what would have happened if they would have moved anywhere else. Like, it, you and I could not be talking to each other right now if it wasn't for that move to Marceline. And it's very weird to think about that, but that's true. Uh, it's, it's very true. Uh, you know, he, he could have went in a complete, complete different direction, you know, a- every step of the way, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Roy would have never gone off to, to fight in the war. Maybe Walt wouldn't have tried to join up as well too. Like it, it, it could be a complete different world that we live in without, without that, uh, move to Marceline. So, yeah, that's on my bucket list someday to go to Marceline, Missouri. So, hopefully, yeah. I so. we're we're gonna make it there one day. We're yes. going to whether or not it lives up to our expectations. That's that's a different. Uh, oh, I think it will. Yeah, I, I don't have high expectations for Marceline. I just I want to be moved when I get there. I want to I want to feel some sort of spirit, and I think. I think it's going to provide that. Yes, I, I agree. Okay, well, Craig, is there any truth to the rumor that you and Rhino record the Universal Studio show in a Universal Studio box truck? <laughs> uh, I can either confirm <laughs> nor deny that, but I will just say, uh, since we do not record together, it would be very difficult to, just because, you know, internet connection and such. So. <laughs> Two box trucks, then. <laughs> I th- maybe, maybe. With, with the whole controversy and all that, I just thought that was a hoot. <laughs> Universal posted that on Twitter. Oh, and it's been a wild, wild week in terms of uh, in terms of what's been happening in Disney Move, uh, and also also with you know Universal being so so bold in terms of their social media strategy uh (laughs) that they literally post a a picture of a box truck that just says get in folks we're going to universal i mean that's i don't even know how to react to that besides laugh like the the fact that they could turn it around that quickly is laughable in itself like they had it waiting or they're just really good at photoshop i'm not sure which one I don't know. It was good. It was good, though. It was. Yeah. Very clever. Now, other controversies that have been brewing for Disney. You know, they're remaking Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I am not a fan of these remakes. But, um, and it baffles me how they, the actress that they've chosen for Snow White, because being the literalist that I am, Snow White is Snow White because she has skin as white as snow. Putting that aside, 
then the, then Peter Dinklage came out complaining about Disney using dwarfs who live in caves and why has he not had a bigger impact on this decision and now actors who would have really been thrilled at getting cast in these seven roles are now speaking out against them saying uh who made you you know uh, you know our spokesperson are now speaking out and um because d- there's a rumor i've never heard it confirmed that disney said we were going to we're going to recast the role the, the characters of these dwarfs as magical creatures i've never heard if that was really Disney really said that or not. But, I mean, what's your take on all of this? I think they should just shut down the movie and just say we're not touching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We're going to leave it as the animated film and walk away from it. If I had my druthers. but Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with you in the sense that I just don't like so many of these uh, animated movies trying to be remade for uh, live action since in this day and age and reimagining, I don't see a purpose in, in remaking Snow White. Like, I, I have tried to see it from every side of it. And honestly, it it's like many other ones like Maleficent. It literally comes down to how can we just write checks for ourselves and mm-hmm. that we know that people are going to come to see it. Uh, and, you know, if that's how Disney needs to survive right now, then I, I guess, sure, keep going for it. You know, it's, it's not the first time that Disney has been hard on money and they needed to find ways to just print cash. Uh, but that being said, you know, I, I feel like the times that they were a lot hard off in the past in terms of creativity in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't. They weren't doing things to to just generate, you know, billions of dollars. They were doing it in terms of surviving. And that's not something that I feel like Disney currently needs. They don't need to survive with live action remakes. They're not they're not in that bad of a position Uh, in terms of uh, Rachel Zegler from West Side Story. She was fantastic in that movie. And I have zero doubt that she would make a fantastic Snow White. Uh, in terms of what Peter Dinklage uh, spoke out about, I kind of spoke about it on our one Patreon after show that I, I feel like he is, he definitely approached it from a very serious stance. And I understand his approach of being hypercritical at it. Um, he, he, I, I feel like there's a lot of hurt in his life of not being taken seriously because of who he is. And so I, I feel like he definitely looks at it as, you know, other people like him are being exploited. And I, I can't really speak on that because of who I am. So I'm never going to, I'm never going to try to speak on behalf of someone else, but I, I feel like I understand where that that kind of hurt is coming from uh, but ultimately it just kind of loops back around to does this story need to be remade it's it's been remade by other studios other than disney in the past couple of years and it's been completely forgettable so 
why does it need to be remade now? I I kind of agree that it's leave leave the animated version as it is, whether or not you agree with you know the the portrayal of the dwarfs in the movie that's that's neither here nor there it's it was made when it was made and so many people hold it up as a classic leave that alone does it need to be remade now no it it, it absolutely doesn't um so if this whole par- project was just completely scrapped i'm i'm not going to bat an eye at it it's, it's i make something new Make something new in its case. Hire someone who has an original story or wants to take a different fairy tale that's never been done before and put that effort into them rather than trying to uh, recover from a lot of the bad press that this one has had. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, they did sort of remake Snow White if you consider the television series Once Upon a Time. I don't. <laughs> but I did not like that series, so I'm not even going to try to. Uh, I'm not going to try to pretend like I liked it. <laughs> okay, but I agree with you, Disney. Just you know, chalk this up to experience, count your losses, and walk away. Because I don't think there's going to be any winning in this one. Yeah, I. No I matter think- what decisions they make. You know, a lot of us have brought it up over the years of why is Disney continually reinvesting themselves in these stories? And, you know, I I feel like in certain times they've done it to uh, a success, something that ended up being kind of beautiful out of it. Like, you know, you and I are both uh, big fans of Cinderella. I love that was gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yes, it absolutely was. I love Peach Dragon, uh, the remake of that completely Mm -hmm. different, but I think it still had, it still had a lot to say. So I don't think the entire reimagining process has been completely worthless for Disney. I think they've done some really good movies out of it, but they've also made some really bad movies with it too. And, you know, as fans, we know that Disney isn't going to listen to us unless we vote with our wallets. And even then, sometimes they don't listen to us. But you have a very prominent actor of the last 10 years calling out a part of it that whether or not they were going to involve the dwarfs in the new uh, Snow White movie, that's that's neither here nor there. But you have a, a prominent person calling them out and asking a question. I hope at the very least Disney and the powers that be would hear that question and say, Hey, with this movie, where are we thinking about that? And Hey, maybe in a general sense, are some of the stories we're trying to reimagine, are they better off left as animated classics of their time? Like so many of us have already said. Um, and I hope they, I hope they find that answer to it because most of the movies they have remade have not needed to be remade uh it's we can count the successes on you know probably one hand if, if we're being if really that. generous <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and finally i know ever since the, the the year of totally mini came out you have really followed her fashion trends and well of course now to you know disneyland paris they're debuting Minnie Mouse in, in her pantsuit. Are you a fan? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I wish I had enough spare time to care <laughs> about Minnie in a pantsuit. 
what, whatever <laughs> Minnie wants to wear. You know what? It, she's been alive for a hundred years. Let her wear whatever <laughs> she wants. To just say you can only wear a dress. Who who are we to decide that? The the only thing, the only criticism I have of it, I, I don't think it's a flattering cut on her, but is that the polka dots are the same color as her skin. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, is she like in an adult film? I mean, with these cutouts and, you know, oh, uh, in yeah. strategically located places, I thought, at least make the polka dots a different color. <laughs> yeah, I and I'm I, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that I necessarily like the outfit. I'm just saying in general, I don't care what they put her in. As <laughs> as long as it looks good, you know, whatever. Go go for it. Put her in a uh, uh, put her in a string bikini for all I care. Uh, you know, just oh, make geez. it look normal. That image out of your head. Yeah, someone will one day. We're, you know, we're still a little early. Give it another hundred years, and that's what she's going to be in, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's there are so many bad things in this world. How can you care about what Minnie Mouse is wearing? It's not, it's not hurting anyone. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Her pantsuit matches the uh, the color of the new signs at Walt Disney World. <laughs> so. So we will feel natural when, you know, even though we're not going to see that outfit here, when we're driving on property and we end up at Magic Kingdom, you know, then it, then you see Minnie in that color. It's like, oh, wow, it's it's full circle. I, I mm-hmm. made it. It works. It's all, there, there's, there's, a, there's a plan. There's yeah. a greater plan. Here. Wow. Yeah. We, yeah. We made it. All right. Well, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the different shows I'm on, on the Disunplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Telecluster, and you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. But what about you, Michael? Send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling, dash, connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Disney. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives by Disney History Episodes. On the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting Us Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 